Fafi. Brother. Take two. Mm -mm -mm. Dave ground the herbs, as our American friends like to say, by hand in his own mortar and pestle this morning. It was beautiful. And honestly, cardamom, when it's ground fresh, has, has a unique flavour. Mm. Completely different to the, the powdery stuff you get. So what normally. are the secret herbs that we go in this? Mm. Can you divulge them for the public? I think we can. Um, these herbs are, these, these herbs are <laughs> Nichananda's recipe for ameliorating the alleged negative effects of coffee, of course, which there are none, unless you drink too much of it and you're just too speedy, like I'm sounding a bit speedy now. Um, but the three herbs are nutmeg, fresh nutmeg, ground from the actual nut, uh, cardamom, ground mm -hmm. from the pods, and cinnamon. Now, cinnamon's actually really hard to get really fine enough. So buying cinnamon powder and keeping it in the fridge is the way to go. That's what I do anyway. Mm. Yeah, use it fresh. Anyway, good to see you, man. So today, we're here in, in Cherie and Ken's lovely space in Belrose. And uh, the, today is coffee shop conversation numero deux. Deux. Mm. Ah. That's lovely. Oh, the must whoops, the moustache is all waxed up. Show it for the good people. Captain Fawcett. Expedition strength. <laughs> when, Expedition when I, strength. When I saw that, just the idea that a gentleman would have to wax his or her moustache, well, his, I suppose, seeing as just for a gentleman, <laughs> how, how, that's, how, that's how political correctness has crept into our speech. We can't actually say his on its own anymore without a reflexive or her. Anyway, Captain Fawcett is, uh, is, the, is the face on the name of this moustache wax. It's described as firm hold, expedition strength. The idea of needing to wax one's moustache into a point before going out on an expedition to me is just immensely amusing. And I remember when you first saw it, you just cracked up, didn't you? It's pretty good. And Dave, he keeps his beard nice and short, so... No need for wax. But, yeah. Mm. So, um, like Roy and HG used to say um, when they were around the card table, what's been on your mind this week, Roy? This week? Whew. Yeah. Many things which we'll get into, but I want to bring it to that point we talked about moments ago about relaxation being a survival uh, skill of this century. Something in our species, and I'm not quite sure we do know how old our species is, but I think the current thinking is over 100,000 years old, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's the with the emergence of Homo sapiens and the demise of Neanderthalers. I think that's accurate. But you anyway, just read that book, didn't you? Yeah, Homo sapiens, A Brief History, an incredibly good book. And mm. I'll, what I'll do is I'll put the... We'll probably mention anti-fragility too at some point, and I'll put the titles of both of those books um, at the end of this, because those two books together um, are really, in my view, the handbooks for how to live well as a human mm. being today. But anyway, for the entire human history evolutionary advantage has been granted to those animals, those predators who can mobilize the fight or flight response the fastest and the strongest. Mm. And it's all mediated through the adrenocorticosteroids. So to put that in lay people's terms, it's the capacity to secrete adrenaline and the other hormones that come in in the trail of, of adrenaline so that we can jump higher, run faster and all of those kinds of things that everyone understands about the fight or flight response. Don't forget the third F as well, that's part of the whole story, but mm -hmm. people only in polite company talk about the first two, fight and flight. But the thing is, if Charles Darwin's theory is accurate, then 
current Homo sapiens are the product of 100,000 years of selection for their greatest capacity to elicit that response the most quickly and the most aggressively. Mm. And for much of human history, because humans are an immensely warfare-loving culture, and as you can see looking around the world today, although we, there's less war around presently than ever before, nonetheless, human beings' greatest capacity, it seems to be, to me at least anyway, is their capacity to kill each other, which we seem to do remarkably effectively. And part of that, I'm sure, is this, I would call, over-capacity in the fight-or-flight syndrome reflex. And that's, from memory, that's mediated through the sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. There, And just like, just like um, insulin and glucagon being twin hormones that have opposite effects in the body, the parasympathetic nervous system has a completely opposite response, which that researcher called Benson, Herbert Benson, in the 60s, I think, named the relaxation response. And which, of course, um, as part of yoga, yoga nidra, part of deep relaxation in Tibetan Buddhism and a whole range of other practices, the whole purpose of the cultivation of those practices is to strengthen the opposite response so that one can actually be relaxed when one needs to be relaxed. And as I wrote somewhere recently, when the shit's hitting the fan, the person who can keep their stuff Mm. together and function and be able to think clearly and be able to do that in a state of relaxation, in my view at least anyway, has definite um, current time advantage. Yeah, and for me it's also these so-called soft skills, the interoception, the visoception, yes. being able to actually feel emotional response bodily yes. and not get taken away by it. Well, we've spoken about this once this. before, but you, you might recall that anger was has always been a problem for me but the cultivation of the deep relaxation response, which started um, when I was on that six-month retreat in Taos in New Mexico, where mm. I did that practice all day, every day, for six months, was, was mm. very powerful, as well as, or, as well as some exercise too, of course, some physical exercise. But I made myself lie down and do um, long breath counting and a whole bunch of other things to make sure that I wasn't just falling asleep. But the thing is, as, as we've commented and, and people have written about elsewhere, my body's very soft now. Mm. And I, I have the capacity to be relaxed in normal daily life. Mm-hmm. And, and this, the, the, getting back to your interoception perspective, the cultivation of that deep relaxation response in me made me much more aware and a much more refined awareness of when my body was organizing itself to become angry. Now this happens in the space of a couple of heartbeats and we've spoken about Mm -hmm. this before. One of my teachers mentioned a time, he said, the Rishis who wrote the Vedas spoke about a time, an earlier time when the great beings walked the earth and the great beings were angry for a space of two or three heartbeats. And so his perspective on all this was we want to be able to feel things as strongly and as unfilteredly as possible, as unbuffered as possible. So mm. we're experiencing reality as fully and as powerfully as possible, but not be attached to it. Mm. When you become angry and you feel yourself becoming angry, if you go with that feeling, it will turn into anger in the space of two or three heartbeats, and you know you could be angry for a week mm. or a lifetime <laughs> um, or, or a few minutes or a few hours. But the, the point is... If one, is, if one has done the practices and one is sufficiently aware of how the body organizes itself to manifest any strong emotion, then, this is my own personal technique, I take a breath in 
I feel my stomach because mm. that's where that's where there's the strongest of the reactions happening. It's not possible to be angry and be relaxed. That's the point. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I feel that happening, I breathe in, take the breath into the abdomen, move or let the awareness drop into the abdomen, and then I let the tummy relax completely and let the breath out. And no one can see me doing this. In fact, I was remembering my friend that I teach the meditation retreats with. He said you deal with aversion well. And he can see it. He can see how quickly this can manifest. Someone will ask a question that my initial response is, fuck, that's a stupid question. But in the space of a heartbeat or two, that feeling is gone. It just whizzes through the system. But unless you practice this stuff, it's not going to happen. So that's the whole point about that balancing response to the fight or flight is the cultivation of the relaxation response. And as I wrote this morning on the forums, the time of the relaxation response has come. Hmm. It is now going to be immensely beneficial for individual practitioners to be able to remain relaxed while the excrement's hitting the air conditioner. Hmm. This is a very... So some people understand this, but I think what can be a trap about that is you can be suppressing these things and not feeling them, and it looks a little bit like you are handling it, but internally the sensation is completely different than if you actually feel it and let it go is different than if you just it is totally different in fact in fact when you repress it or suppress it suppress whichever slight difference in perspective you're literally just putting a cap on a pressure cooker Mm -hmm. and the heat's still there Mm -hmm. and at at some point you'll explode (laughs) and we see it all the time people getting angry i mean we were driving through um, Ken and Sri and I went to the Dalai Lama. We were invited to the Dalai Lama's birthday party um, at the town hall last night. Celebrations all around the world for his 80th birthday. And we were walking back through Sydney and I was looking at the faces and the, reading the energies of the people we were surrounded by. And it, it, was, it, was, it was quite shocking to walk out of one atmosphere into a normal Saturday night in Sydney atmosphere where everyone's getting wasted and the, well, you know what it's like. Mm. And also, too, potentially, for young men in particular, potentially quite a dangerous environment to be in. I mean, every Friday and Saturday night, someone gets beaten up somewhere, sometimes mm. quite badly, and sometimes killed. Mm. So, you know, if we're talking about skillful means, which we haven't mentioned so far, then surely, as one wakes up, skillful means suggest that we stay away from those sorts of environments <laughs> if we're paying any kind of attention at all. It's true, but the desire to go and do that is Strong. also... Strong, but disappears as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to pick up on something you spoke about a second ago. It's tremendously important. There are schools of cultivation which extol the virtues of detachment. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, this is completely the wrong direction to go in. Detachment means at some point you get to the stage where I'm above everything and I don't feel anything. Whatever is happening around me doesn't touch me. Mm. You don't want that. What you want is to be, at least in my view anyway, is to be as alive as possible, as aware as possible, feeling everything as strongly as possible, but not be attached to it. That Mm. is to say, the normal process of emotions in the human body is that once they manifest, and and we should mention at this point too, because I know you've done a lot of work in in this field as well, when I talk, I talk about anger only because it's the emotion that has been the troubling emotion for me. Mm-hmm. But it could be any of the emotions, grief, depression, well, it's just any of them. And each of us comes into the world, it seems, with a very strong predisposition to have this reflexive 
behavior that we do when our buttons are pushed. That's the point. Mm. And so it can be that some people, if they move into self-pitying mode, immediately their buttons are pushed or when they get tired or stressed. When I get tired or stressed, I get irritated easily or, as you know, <laughs> we'll just get flat out angry, mm. right? Which of course is immensely unhelpful and also very damaging both to oneself internally and also to the people around. Mm. And so that's why, it, I can't remember how old I was then when I was in Taos, it would have been maybe, oh, I, can, I can never remember things anymore. I would have been about 30, well I must have been no, before I was 40, tree. however old it was. But I had realised at that point that this particular emotional reflexive response was consuming me. Mm. That's the thing, and extremely damaging. It's also very aging too. It is, and but so you did this practice for six months every day. I think this is the type of effort that's necessary yeah. to get traction on these things, which is not what people want to hear as well. Well, look, let me just elaborate on that. The more deeply entrenched your habit is, and the more certain you are that this is a good habit and a right habit for you, the harder practice you need to do, not softer. Harder mm -hmm. in the sense of directing attention to it because as all of the, the great flex, yes, mm -hmm. awareness changes. I don't say fix, there's nothing to fix, but awareness changes everything. Mm -hmm. Enough awareness. And you have to muster the energetic state to have that presence to do that work. And it's not easy. That's why they call it work. <laughs> <laughs> as Rudy he likes yes, to say. he does say that. Yeah. Mm. For me, what I've been talking about with Craig recently as well is, and it's a word that is apt, is re-enchantment. So oh. part of what this is for me is the relaxation capacity to bring it about, to cultivate it, but also these internal senses. And it's not a one or the other. You don't have to give up strength training and all these explosive things or whatever you do. You just don't only develop those things you add in these softer skills and the mix of both is actually in my opinion superior yin doing and one yang or paul grilly's yin yoga for example an antidote to all the hard yoga that the people do look absolutely absolutely accurate absolutely accurate so to put that in slightly more formal terms we are saying that in the practices that we're endorsing and, you know, we both do strength training practices and flexibility practices. And in your case, you call a bunch of practices that you do physical alchemy. And I don't have a particular name for one mine. But they involve, for me at least anyway, as, as for your regular sitting practice, I do a lying relaxation at least every day mm -hmm. and so on, the same practice. And I want to mention something here about practices. In our world currently people are madly attracted to the latest fad or fads or they want the, the mind of the individual wants to know something new and this really plays back into what you were saying a moment ago about sustained effort mm -hmm. sustained effort means that you actually have to do the same practice mm -hmm. until you perfect it or master it or at least achieve some capacity in it and that cannot occur by changing the practices that you're doing every week or every day mm. and there are times when the mind will rebel against the decision to do this practice or that practice because it gets bored with it. And actually, boredom is gold. As soon as you find boredom in yourself, you need to slap yourself in the face. At least that's what I do. And you've seen me physically slap my own face. Wake <laughs> up! <laughs> boredom is a sign of resistance. And resistance, this can be expressed extremely simply. Resistance is simply resistance to what is in that moment. 
That's very prof- that's powerful. Yeah, I, I had a thing with boredom. Um, I used to get incredibly bored as a teenager, and then after about two thousand seven, when I began practicing, I actually haven't been bored since this period. It and you know me, I've never been bored, right? Yes, but this is interesting because I had a change in it because I used to be very bored, mm. and I realised it was a. It doesn't exist. It's a it's a mental phantom. It doesn't really exist. It's a kind of a subclinical irritation that comes in and moreover it's there's almost like an arrogance to it it's like someone should be coming and making my life more interesting rather than me just paying attention and doing something yes that's that's or paying attention and doing nothing but either way you have to pay attention and it just evaporates it doesn't exist the, 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 the part that I picked up on then is you, the person who's experiencing the boredom, has mm-hmm. to pay attention. In other words, it requires an, an injection of energy. Yeah, it does. As does everything. The boredom is a very low energy state. It's a very... It is. Yeah, yeah it's mm. limp. It has this kind of <laughs> posturing to it. Yes, it does. And also, that too, don't it? you think there's something very precious about boredom? There is. I'm bored. This is the thing I was saying. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that's the thing. You make me not bored, please. Yeah, that's right. Okay. It's your responsibility. I'm bored. Yep. It's, and it's I'm a make, lack of responsibility. And I'm making it your problem. Mm-hmm. There's something extremely toxic about that, I think. Mm, very much. And the thing is, it's it's pervasive and it's and it it can be very subtle, too. It's not. Mm. It, it, I mean, I was caricaturing it a second ago, but the... The energetic experience of being bored can be so subtle. Yeah, very much. That you possibly can miss it. That's what I'm thinking. And, yeah. it's, a, and it's a way, I don't know whether you agree with this, it's just an idea that occurred to me. It's a way of switching off, it's a way of disengaging from the flow of the present. Totally. And it has, okay. it it's, can be very subtle because you can not notice it, but it has a, internally has a, specific tension patterning that's very subtle but if you work on that you can feel boredom in your body as in where does it live for you and you can it can creep up on you and you suddenly realize ah the old pattern trying to establish itself once again but then it's very fascinating for me because it used to be I had no awareness of the physical manifestation of the boredom I would just end up bored and wouldn't know how to get out of it but now I can feel it trying to establish and you can it just you can shoo it off very very easily by relaxing those muscles, by changing the breath pattern, by refocusing uh, internal external type of thing. And it just disappears. It's very fascinating. It used to be a very real experience for me, but it doesn't that's, exist. That's the that's the goal <laughs> to funny. become aware <laughs> that the thing up until the point of this awareness occurring, the thing that you knew and was certain was real mm. turns out to be a complete phantom. It's, it's the not same real with at that all. Hip flexor, but tension, exactly. and everything. But before you experience that, it is absolutely real. In fact, I've, you've heard me say this a million times, but the vast majority of the population on the planet today, and certainly walking down Pitt Street um, last night, I could see it. The reality of what the mind is doing in the space between the ears is way realer than what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. This to me is extremely interesting. It is very interesting. It's why I preference my awareness training the highest. Then I preference my sensation re-enchantment training. And then after that, movement and physical mm-hmm. cultivation. The well, hierarchy is on awareness first. Well, you, I could not agree more and, and more with that. And you understand why. 
when you first came to study with us in the monkey gym all those years ago, you remember mm-hmm. the very first presentation I did to the group of beginners is, we're going to teach you something about awareness. Awareness? And I, the, the guy with the big biceps, he's, he, he said, I didn't come here to learn about awareness, I came to build my arms up. <laughs> we're going to start with awareness. Remember? Mm-hmm. How to feel how to feel in the body, and how to feel how to do things, and then to do the things. It's exactly as you say. Hmm. That and you can have all of them as well. But just for me, the hierarchy is descending in that order. Yes, I agree. For good reason. Yeah. If you're going to move, you may as well pay attention as well. This is a thing, the embodied presence of people moving around. It's very fascinating. You can be exceptionally good at moving and exceptionally strong and not really there at all whilst doing it. Mm. Or you can pay attention and also be very strong and very good at moving. Mm. But the quality is different. It's a subtle thing. You have to have done some form of transformation yourself to notice it. Mm. But it's very cool when you see someone whose physical body is in amazing shape, like a dancer or whoever it is, and they're also fully there in that body. Mm. And that effortless, that thing we were talking about with flexibility and suppleness, it almost plays into that. There's this. I think it does. Can't quite measure it, unfortunately. Or fortunately. Well, one of the th- this is one of the problems of Western science. The whole well, first is the impulse to measure. That's just fascinating to me because the thing that science has the least to say about is a description of one's internal state. In fact, it's ruled out of considerations for serious purposes because it's the ultimate subjective experience. But for each human being on the planet, the most important experiences are exactly what they're feeling inside at any given time. And so part of your work and part of my work is about the creation of a set of tools to allow the deepening of that experience. And as you say, from the surface it doesn't look much different. Mm. But the actual experience of your life will be changed completely by that. Mm. That's worth doing. It does as well. Like over the long term, you were saying before, attention ages you. It does. You can see it upon people's faces. You can see what their, their current, or not current, but their pattern of thinking and feeling is quite often. Um, not many people have smiling wrinkles. No, and, and that's a we, I, I've thing. said this on workshops so many times, but if we anaesthetise someone or if someone dies, if someone's actually physically dead, they look so relaxed. In fact, one of the things, God, I've, I've seen funny. quite a lot of dead people, as you know, one of the things that people say, and it's, just, it's hysterically amusing when you think about it, oh, Grandpa, who was an irascible, irritable old bastard who made everyone's <laughs> life hell, he looks so peaceful now. Yeah, he's dead. The the mind has been disconnected from the physical body, and as a result, it relaxes. Um, it's look, we we actually we, we get <laughs> it is crazy, isn't it? We get the face we deserve after the age of forty, roughly That's, for this men. This is Cherie's favourite comment. Is it? It's a, oh, good. Yeah, it's a very it's, it's true. true. I like it. It's very yeah, funny. It is true. And so the thing is, you you can't hide it. Whatever you are. Whatever is running your program most of the time, it's absolutely indelibly visible in your face. And even the people who paralyze their face and get facelifts, you can still see, you can still the, see it. the imprint upon The frozen mask. It doesn't mask. change anything. The Botox generation. <laughs> God. How insane is that? Oh, you know oh, what some, some, Sorry, one thing. I've got, go. got, got to add this. This is something that happens on the end of the stretch workshops by the afternoon of the second day. Without fail, every time, I'll say at some point, 
look around everyone, and someone will say, holy moly, you, you look so much younger. You know, this is one and a half days into a process mm-hmm. of just doing simple stretching. Yeah, you've stopped obsessing about yourself. You're actually present in your body, and it feels good. Tension has gone. And ah. people laugh. Yeah. That's yes, that's statistic. I'm not sure if it's correct, but the, the kind of meaning underneath it is the important part of kids laughing some number of hundreds of times per day and adults it's like four or something ridiculous like that's the fucking problem it's a a deep problem it is a deep problem and it's not that i don't believe that i mean some people believe in the cultivation of laugh yoga and a whole bunch of other things which is designed to i hope at least designed to reawaken that spontaneous sense but laughter is the ultimate spontaneous act Mm. and you might recall one of our teachers mentioning that uh, the time for everyone each day um, or any time in their life, the, the one time that you can be certain that the ego is not present and not running the show is when you burst into laughter mm, spontaneously. Spontaneous. That's the yep. thing, it's got to be spontaneous. Having said that, there is a, there is a very old idea in, in spiritual work, which is the idea of faking it till you make it. And the idea there is to actually cultivate physical actions like bursting into laughter, mm. um, but doing it deliberately to reawaken the experience in the body to reconnect with the experience in the body so that mm. the spontaneous or the spontaneous laughter then manifests spontaneously. It's an interesting one. I've tried it and it worked. I was laughing with uh, my wife and daughter, fake laughing because my daughter was doing this. She's three and after a minute of it, you do start to laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, we've been in the state, you and I, when in just lifting an eyebrow enough to re- reduce the other person to paroxysms of hysteria rolling around on the floor, it's literally good. rolling around on the floor. We want more of that. We do. Yeah. The the thread that you were speaking about before on the forums, so I want to just talk about that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reason I feel I can talk about it with, with certainly with no authority, because no one has any authority in this area, but just again from direct experience, is because the before and after state in my own body before getting into these practices seriously was a different body. Mm. Um, My body is physically soft when I'm not doing anything and you've you've commented on this and other people have too. But most people when they get to my age when you touch their bodies they're rigid. Mm. And and this is actually what's killing us. Mm. Killing us quicker than we need to. I notice elderly people in this society walk around and it's very everyone's seeing it it's quite unnatural the rigidity and oh, robotic I- immense stiffness and an immense lack of resilience which i think that's the suppleness mm. that olivia is pointing to but it's it's more than that and it's deeper than that and the state that i'm talking about and the, what olivia is talking about on the forums and we'll i'll link to that um, thread at mm-hmm. the end too because it is, is for me it's the most interesting thread on the forums yeah, currently it's, it's just great and I, and I posted something on it this morning too mm-hmm. um and that is and and this is extremely interesting in the context of people who are doing gymnastic strength training and they're trying to perfect uh, flexibility movements like um, the pancake or in, in yoga it's called the pavista konasana the, the legs mm-hmm. apart pose where you put your chest on the ground you can do that, and Olivia can do that cold. You've seen her do it many times, and so can Yuri and a bunch of other people that we know. Um, but that capacity, that physical flexibility capacity, does not in any way relate to the state of being relaxed in normal daily life. And that's Olivia's point. That's why she raised the question, because she does not experience her life like that, as in relaxed. 
and and that's interesting because and she posed the question how can it be in the pursuit of and the cultivation of physical flexibility how come i'm not enjoying this other state as well mm-hmm. and craig posted and he has his own approach to the acquisition of that state and then mm-hmm. and then i posted on my approach which for me and i i have to say for me because it would that practice would have been probably completely the wrong practice for you yeah this is the interesting thing this is the thing we each have to find the practice that as one of our teachers would describe it the antidote to the state that we've been given to work with Hmm. now in my case massive physical tension that was what i was given Hmm. i was as you know an athlete and a bunch of other things um, and it was always too much tension that stopped me performing at better levels in all of those things. Mm-hmm. And also the tension is inextricably, inextricably bound up in what we describe as the emotion of anger and all the other things that we've spoken about. Take 15 seconds to go. Oh, okay. Well, you can stop that now um, and restart that. Okay. I have... There's a, a waviness happening behind Dave in the light, and about I don't know why that's happening. All that is is a zebra pattern. It's telling us that that is brighter than what his face is. Okay. That's all that is. It's a, like a pattern like this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't worry about it's that. It's okay. That's worry. totally it's okay. It's having a migraine. It's very... <laughs> Poor thing. Fuck, I had one of those. So are, are, we, are we rolling? Okay. Uh, and just just be careful not you don't drift too far to the right yes. right okay and i'm going to just do this thing again is it rolling right oh. be quiet <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah anyway what was i talking about oh we're talking about this and so for me it's a similar thing that there is some correlation between muscular flexibility and suppleness for some but then for others is different i don't know who this is inclusive of say someone who can do a pancake cold like olivia possibly muscular structures or membranous structures deeper within her are tight i'm not sure possibly or maybe it's just different it's a mental state that induces this let, rather let, than physical I'm, to make that kind I'm, of artificial I, no i'm absolutely certain that <clears throat> that is accurate um because one's physical state and one's mental state are isomorphic, as they like to say in, in philosophy, they are the same thing. We divide them. Our mental, our I should I should say, our education system and our medical system divides this thing that comes to us in a single package into mental and physical. In fact, there we have these two very discrete, mm. separate paths in medicine. And so, what I was going to say using that metaphor because it's not accurate and and i've written about this and we've spoken about this many times and i don't want to go on that little journey just yet unless unless you feel it's useful i'll just very briefly say because the the mind is everywhere in the body through the nervous system but and this is not well known the body is everywhere in the mind because all of the furniture of thought is at its root at heart they're all physical metaphors they're schemas like for example um, a containment schema or this in front of that schema or this above that schema there's only about eight or nine of them and all thought is made up of those fundamental physical um, Actually, experiences yeah, I'll take that out a second because that's from that book that in your recommended reading list the body and the Johnson. mind mark yeah. johnson and Brilliant. people are starting to talk about this a bit but that book is quite old it's referenced oh, yeah. in your book possibly from the 90s or before before yeah this hey, is quite fascinating mark's brilliant. yeah he's brilliant and he was the first one in Western thought, to, to my knowledge, excuse me, to actually have that observation. 
Mm. And well, he wrote a brilliant book. Uh, uh, he he wrote a book with George Lakoff, which has the best title of any book I've ever read. The title is Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. And I mean, how perfect <laughs> that is a category. That's a category, as in. Um, we talk about categories of, uh, of um, as in containers, like a, a herd of elephants or a whatever, mm-hmm. a school of fish or a swarm of fish. Somebody said the other day, but normally a school of fish. Um, but a category, there is a category in this particular culture's way of thinking where women, fire and dangerous things are all put in the same category. Mm. I find that interesting and also accurate. <laughs> Sometimes. Anyway, I just found that very amusing. But... The point that what Lakoff and Johnson, it's a very famous textbook, it's a seminal textbook in anthropology actually, what they found was that thought, all thought is made up of very simple units that they call conceptual schema. Now that's worth thinking about. Mm. And, and Mark's later work was to, well, he wrote the book The Body and the Mind, where he was able to, der- to derive all the operators of logic, and as you know that's my background, mm. He, all the operators of logic, so and, or, not, and all, and the other operators are all able to be derived and in fact are all derived from physical experience. Mm. Now that's, that's profound because he says, he goes on to argue, that that is actually what structures our thought, even though we have sort of n different layers of elaboration beyond that. I mean, for example, if I mention something like the general agreement on tariff and trade, it's pretty hard to see how that mm. idea can be made up for those physical blocks, but when you break it down... Mm then you can see, yes, at 100 levels, say, below the idea of GATT, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, the things, the elements that make up that, that concept are all physical metaphors. Mm. That is extremely interesting to me. Yes. So, see, just on this, this is a fascinating thing, I guess, part of your background. So you were doing philosophy and human ecology and reading stuff like this mm. and Damasio and Reich and me and of other Damasio was much later. Okay. I wasn't an academic then, um, but I mean, Mark Mark Johnson, we corresponded. I mean, I found that work so utterly compelling, and this is before. No, it was after the time I spent in New Mexico, but it was actually, I was doing the PhD research that I never finished, and the, the broad topic there would best be described as the limits to the scientific method. And I realised it was actually understanding that science has absolutely nothing useful to say about, say, the experience of a taste of an orange or um, choice of life partner. Nothing whatsoever interesting to say or useful. It led me, and I wrote a paper on that too, as you know. Um, it, w- it, w- it Then I thought, well, okay, if science, and by then I was some kind of a sort of a, a junior expert in the scientific method, having you know researched it and written about it for many, many years, I thought, well, okay, if this... If this tool, this brilliant tool, and it is a brilliant tool it for is. uncovering understanding of processes, and in, especially in the natural environment, if this is not going to give me what I feel I need now, what direction do I have to look in? And, and I'm not exaggerating. One day I was in the library and I had this epiphany. Our culture is fixated on looking outside and seeking outside experiences. And yet there are other cultures on the planet that have been around for much, much longer than ours. And I'm talking here in particular about Chinese culture, um, Tibetan culture to a lesser extent, um, and of course Indian culture to the greatest extent, where they privileged internal inspection, looking inside, seeking the answers to life's big questions by being still rather than by being active, and so on and so forth. All the sorts of things. And we still had 
vast scientific cultures as well. Absolutely, yeah. and something that most people That's don't realise. I mean, to the, uh, the the Arabs invented zero, for mm. example. Um, they were they were so far ahead of the rest of the world in mathematics at one point. I think it was around the 10th century. And that's the time of Rumi, and all the time of when the Sufis were dominant. Very interesting. Mm. So, um, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that, except to say that the realisation that logic and science were very useful for some things but wouldn't actually help me very much in this other direction that I was interested in, that made me redouble my efforts in these other directions and start to look a bit more deeply inside. And I realised very, very quickly the barrier to looking inside is that there's no stillness there in the beginning at least when you start to practice and you you realize when you first sit or do lying practices that the mind is a very very busy place indeed right mm. and people when they first sit down and they try to learn meditation the amusing thing it's just hysterical really you see this on retreats all the time they'll be really irritated by the fact that they notice that they're distracted all the time but as, as patrick says that's the whole point of the sitting is to notice that as long as you notice that everything's just fine and so he's a very good teacher I think he's I enjoy working with him very much yes I don't have any more to say on that but that thread on the forums it is important I think and I don't think we've plumbed it I think that what's happening as well, Craig just wrote that article about different types of flexibility and trying to get some clarity on this because people use very differing terminologies. I think part of this is a terminological, not debate, but we're trying to see this person did this thing and it had both physical, mental, etc. and created relaxation, but this other person didn't work for or was incorrect or the way they explained it is slightly Wasn't different. Wasn't effective wasn't effective yes how do we know because they didn't experience the state that the practice for someone else created in them which they then spoke about and shared mm. it's so it's a recurring theme on the forums and i wrote about this yesterday morning is that some, i do sound like a broken record sometimes and 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 for the younger members of our audience who have no idea what a broken record what that metaphor actually means <laughs> It's when a record gets worn out and the needle, instead of going in a continuous track that starts at the outside edge of the record and goes all the way into the centre, and the music's recorded in hills and valleys and, and movements of the needle up and down and sideways. That's how you get the stereo effect, by the way. So two sets of movements simultaneously. When a record gets worn out, or when it wears sufficiently, the groove is made where the needle doesn't continue to the centre of the record. It actually just goes round in one track again, dip, again, Dip, again, dip. And so a needle struck in a groove or a broken record, that's the, that's, that's the metaphor. And, the, and what it is is when you find yourself saying the same things again and again and again, not hopefully because you're senile, although I do wonder about that sometimes, but, <laughs> it, but because and this is, there are some very important things come out of this observation. It is because the beginning things are the most important things and playing back into what I was talking about before, how as a culture we're fascinated by the latest thing mm. or the most spectacular thing, but the fact is, coming back to the basics regularly, you might remember both in our strength training and in our flexibility training, in the advanced class we would come back to the basics mm. every six weeks or so. And the amazing thing is that even really flexible people like Olivia or Jennifer or the other people in our group who are super flexible, they'd be doing something really basic 
And then they'd be saying, that's interesting, I feel something different today. And because you can actually do the movement, because you're not struggling to achieve it, Mm. you are able to attend much more strongly to the internal sensations, it seems to me. This is for me, instead of having a movement complexity, you have a sensation complexity inside, or richness or depthness or whatever you want to say about it. But I've found the same thing. I mean, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of times I've done a hip flexor stretch or whatever, but... It's fascinating. It's even more fun now. It is. And the thing is, it is never the same. No. Now, I know that, again, if you don't have this experience in your own body, hearing someone say that will not resonate with you. Mm. But I have done the hip flexor stretch 10,000 times, I suppose. 100,000, No, probably not that many times. (laughs) But the thing is, you know, the the idea that 10,000 is supposed to give you some... That number, yes. It's... The guy wrote wrote a book recently about that. That gives you mastery. I don't agree with that because you can do 10,000 things with no awareness or do something (laughs) 10,000 times with no awareness and have no mastery of anything whatsoever. But uh, with certain certain attendant conditions, if I can put it that way, if you're really paying attention to what's happening, Mm. and this is the the reason for mentioning this, each of those 10,000 repetitions is actually a different experience. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous to say that when you look at someone doing a hip flexor stretch and quite clearly they're in exactly the same position and they're moving their hips around and they're doing this and doing that. But if you pay attention and and the refinement of your sensory connection to your internal state has progressed to past a certain point, you become aware that every time you work with your body, holy moly, it's actually a different body. Mm. I, I look, all right, I'm not six feet tall. And I'm never going to be six feet tall, so it's not different in that sense. No, and my eyes will always be blue, at least, well, we think that's an assumption, a presumption, I should say. And maybe that's not accurate. But at the gross scale, these things don't change. Mm. But the experience of them changes profoundly. Mm. That's important. Mm. It's very important, in fact. And I understand what you're saying we've all had this the first time I turn up to class it's just like man some stretches and then for however many lessons it's some stretches and then you start to like hey wait a second hang on something's happening here exactly (laughs) exactly and it's not an immediate or an obvious thing at all and in fact for many people it goes unannounced as in Mm. I'm having this experience but actually it could just be me I'm not going to mention it I'm not going to say anything and then at some point someone will say well you know I tried this and something else, and then I felt this. Did anyone else feel that? The next thing you know, half the room is saying, yep, mm. yeah, that happened to me too. But anyway, getting back to what I was trying to point to is the absolute necessity and desirability of doing things which you can actually do, things which are regarded as beginner's practice, but doing them and mustering more and more awareness as you do them, and that changes the experience completely mm. as well. And gets rid of the boredom, which doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Yeah. Boredom is resistance. But this is why people want 15 exercises per session, etc., etc., etc. Yes, we're always being asked on the forums and being asked in your consultations, well, okay, okay yeah, you showed me that exercise, but have you got, have you got a new one? Mm. And I say no. <laughs> and <laughs> some people say, well, why not? and why not? Or I'm tired of doing that one. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you want to work on now. You want to work on that resistance. Mm. That's complete. It's complete fabrication, if you like, or it's completely the, the province of the mind, and that's something that can be re-experienced extremely quickly as long as you become aware 
of that, mm. whether the resistance is in the mind or not in the body, I mean. Mm. But anyway, getting back to the beginning stuff, every complex movement, the capacity to generate extreme strength, all of those things are made up of much more simple, smaller things, which the people who are practitioners say you, you've, you've achieved a great skill as a dancer or a gymnast or an Olympic lifter like my friend Phil, What looks like a complex skill, and is a complex skill, is made up of, of discrete, chunkable, smaller skills. Mm. Like, for example, here's a, here's a good one. If you can't squat down in good form, then you will never get really strong in the back squat because you'll hurt yourself before you get really strong. And so the development of that an sufficient ankle flexibility and the, all the other things that, that mm. a good squat requires, they're the things that need re-experiencing on a regular basis. I think that's a good example, don't you think? The squat yeah. in our culture particularly because people don't squat down very much. Oh, there is interesting discussion on these these things happening as well, which is mm. fun to watch, which are the, whatever you want to use, fundamental or necessary mm. uh, building blocks if you do not want to get injured or have compensation patterns in your movements. Uh, people are talking about these things. It's very interesting. Um, and I think what we've been talking about today, there's so this is within the strength training realm, slightly wider than that. So mm. we're talking about relaxation and concentration as well. These are fundamentals. They are me. fundamentals. Look, you just sparked a thought then. I remember working um, with one of our one of our teachers, and I was washing up. You, I told you the story. I was washing up washing up by hand and I was making a lot of noise well, not, uh, some noise a lot of noise that's a relative thing Make, let's say I was making a lot of noise and uh, and he said what are you doing I said I'm doing the washing up he said well, you're making a lot of noise and I said well I'm what did I say something like well I'm rushing through this to get to something that I want to do and he said you just kissed off part of your life That was a massive learning moment for me. And so, this is why on the workshops now, when I'm presenting these workshops with Patrick, or that I'll say, okay, so the next session, the next eating session, try to eat without making any noise at all. When I say any noise at all, I'm talking about noise from the teeth, the jaw, dropping utensils on a plate when you go to wash up, can you actually place the glass in the rack without making any noise? Can you put a saucepan next to a plate without making any noise? And fascinating, you don't have to slow down much to do this in, ter in real time terms, mm. I mean. Probably two-thirds the speed or half the speed that you normally do things in, once you get reasonably proficient at it, you can move mm. elegantly and silently. But the degree of awareness it brings forth in the experience and the, well, the sheer aliveness that you feel... Yeah. Oh, this is cool because it's the fusion of movement, awareness, and sensation at once. And so for me, this the getting very skillful at mundane things is, I find it very cool. It's probably not as spectacular as doing an iron cross, but for me, uh, eminently more useful. Yes. And I can do it everywhere, and I don't. You cannot overtrain awareness. So. It's and, and the, a very high form of yoga in some schools is called the yoga of daily life. And it's got nothing to do with doing handstands or, you know, mm -hmm. 
all the other spectacular physical things that some yogis do. And Mr. Iyengar, I mean, I, did I mention this in our last conversation? But he is eloquent on this in his book, Light on Yoga, which still, in my view, is the best thing that's been written on yoga in English. The first, whatever it is, 80 or 90 pages, most people skip past because it looks like a lot of text and, you know, people don't read these days. So I'll just open it to the first exercise and that's mm. where they go, the first asana, I think Tadasana is his first asana, the standing pose, mountain pose. But if you take the time, make the time to read those 80 or 90 pages, it is absolute gold. Mm. And at one point he says, and this plays into precisely what you're speaking about, he says, many gymnasts and dancers can do the poses of yoga, but not all of those people experience equanimity in daily life. Now, I found that profound. Mm. Equanimity in daily life, that's of course exactly what we're talking about. Mm. And this is the difference between non-attachment and detachment too. Equanimity doesn't mean feigning detachment from the situation. It means that whatever's happening your internal state is not disturbed. It's not upset. And it's anti-fragile. It's extremely anti-fragile, but it's All also well. rare. Yes, it it's is. It's also, in my view, extremely desirable. When I, when one of my teachers said, and you remember the moment you've heard him say this as well, he said, he was quoting another great uh, Roshi, another Zen master, and he said, ah, the mind, a worthy opponent. Mm -hmm. oh, I just cracked up. Yeah, the best. And and as you said, <laughs> with you at all times. And let me just make that point too. The first Satipatthana, uh, uh, the first foundation of mindfulness, is the body. Not accidentally. This is with us all the time. Mm. And I think this is one of the things that I love about Patrick's teaching, is the refocusing of the attention on that first Satipatthana, the body itself, as being the thing that's with you all the time that you pay attention to. So in these many multiple little ways, like how am I placing the glass in the washing mm. up rack? How am I walking down the stairs? Am I Have I drifted off to sleep yet again? And as you start to notice what your mind does, you'll see that we fall asleep again and again and again, multiple times a minute. Mm -hmm. Now the first time you see that clearly, it's downright shocking. I mean, you think, Horrifying. holy shit, it's everywhere. <laughs> this tendency to, to fall asleep. It's just, it's everywhere, or the structure of your own mind, um, how, to, how to express this succinctly. Each of us comes into the world with a mind that's organized in a particular way or has certain elements present. And when you have the awareness that in fact even your perception, even how you see and hear is structured by the shape and the position of the furniture in your mind, I remember having this experience, holy shit, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. In other words, I can't escape <laughs> it. Alas. That was a remarkable, a remarkable moment. And that's what this tattoo is about, as you know. So we show it for the good people. Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure that I can show it, but I mean, there's this thing written on my arm. It's very nice. Um, and it's the, it's the first of, a, of the twin verses of, of the Dhammapada, which is the Mahayana um, Buddhist primary sutra or most important sutra even though I've done more, much more work in Theravada and, and Tibetan Buddhism but it's glossed and Sung San um, one of our teachers teacher glossed it as the mind creates everything now what what people don't realize is that in Buddhism the mind is the sixth sense 
and the sixth sense structures all the other senses. Mm. That's interesting, mm-hmm. extremely interesting. And if you if you actually have the experience of the of the extent to which the shape of your own mind is literally creating your experiences when you have that it's an immensely liberating experience because i felt an immense weight being taken off my shoulders to be honest with you because i thought oh okay that's not real either (laughs) you know like that it doesn't mean my favorite example if you want the coffee to stay in the cup the opening has to face the sky there's no way around that that's what Mm. in philosophy we call that a brute fact of reality no amounting of wishing it to be different no chanting of mantras will change that. Well, actually, that might not be right. We don't know about that for sure. <laughs> but there are certain things about the way this life is organised in this universe, in this time and space, which, no matter what explanations we are accorded or wish it were different, it doesn't change. Mm. But there are so many other things about our experience of life which are malleable to a degree which until you start bending and twisting these things, you literally, I can, again, I can only speak from my own experience, it's not possible to have any conception of the extent to which that is true, mm. I, I think. Mm. Hmm. Now, we had a question about teaching. About? What makes good teaching, what makes... A good student. Yes, let's talk about that. You talk, well, I, I'm going to be quiet. I'll try to be quiet. In your view, mm-hmm. what are the qualities of a good teacher? Mm-hmm. And what are the qualities of a good student? What enables a person to become a good student, in your view? Mm-hmm. This is a good question. I've been very lucky to have three very, very good teachers in a row. Quite blessed. Um, you are one of them. No, I shouldn't kiss that up. Thank you. I'm extremely grateful. <laughs> but I don't. I don't think of myself as being a good teacher. But I've this worked is with some. Perhaps one of the things I've worked with some very good teachers too, as you know. Mm. And I'm. Yes. I, I said I wasn't going to talk, so I'm not going to talk. <laughs> uh, for me, in my experience, the it has to be the kind of meetings of the meeting of the mind with the two people like the mentoring apprenticeship style learning for me is the most useful it did help with all three of my teachers that i had done some general background reading and from that i could then ask questions that were not completely i guess not useful or easily answerable i could ask the hard questions that i was personally warring with and get answers from experience um and that brings me to a the most important thing is that kind of it's a pity that Reich uses character armor to mean something negative because I like to say character is in someone has character and perhaps it's personality armor that is the negative aspect um, you can meet these people and in some way tell that they have transcended something like you were mentioning anger they they have worked with something real and gotten somewhere with it you can you can just stalt the the transformation in them i just wonder on the record i haven't mastered it i'm just a beginner okay. in it seriously. Gotten somewhere with seriously. it seriously and that's saying a big thing as well um 
every teacher I've met has had a broad knowledge base as well as uh, specialties of, and the specialties they're very good at. Um, but they can, they know enough about a lot of things that they can change the, change the conversation or the context. There's a width there, a breadth yes. of knowledge as well as a specialty. Um, and then personal things, the awareness quality of the person, the fact f that they are going upstream, so to speak, they are different from the rest of people in society. Explain what you mean by upstream. That's that's okay. So important. the kind of general trends to go to specific jobs. So I went to a private school, and the the imprint that you get from that is that you have to go to university and then white collar job and then this and then kids death maybe a ferrari etc <laughs> etc some type of trappings of materialism but in a uniform way there's these certain professions you go to those or if you go to somewhere else there's a you're put into a already fit box whereas the people I met who became my teachers there was no box for those they were people they had character they had just found something in them uh, that they they were on their own bender. well they could have just been they could have just been incredibly selfish like me they could have but this you can tell and they that just if you're pursue attention. the things that interest them and they pursue them from an outsider's perspective, often obsessively and often without any apparent result. This right? is true, but people will, will pursue very normal things selfishly as well. Mm, so true. houses, money, etc. The people who I study from, they pursue very abnormal things with extreme passion. And That's so true. abnormal, they want to know about Yes, there's, a, there's, a curi <laughs> there's, there's definitely this a curiosity a, that drives them. Yeah, and I had that same curiosity. So to meet people who also possessed that but had gotten further was a very that's how it created the apprenticeship style thing because I wanted them to know the things that they had already got the answers to but through experience as well as through just knowledge because you can tell if someone has the conceit of wisdom as David Abraham said from that Thamus quote they talk about things but they don't know them or they don't do them they even worse. Them. Yes, that is worse. You have to get traction. An idea is only useful if it can do something, in my opinion. I think even that's it. It's the traction. You can traction. feel, and if you're perceiving enough, you you can feel and see from behavior, from whatever else that the person has got traction with something substantial. Something. Yeah. Well, or, although it could be something relatively or seemingly insubstantial too, like, like that great quote from... Um, Baba Ram Das, the woman, the knitter, the knitter, remember the woman knitting? Mm -hmm. Yes. So it doesn't matter what you do. It does not. It was just that the people who I had as teachers knew things that I wanted to know about yeah, on sure. my personal expedition. Yeah. Hmm. I think we've been given the camera warning again. Have we? Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. Well, look, why don't, look why, don't we, why don't we pick up the next conversation with that idea mm -hmm. everyone everyone talks about what makes a good teacher or at least i've heard a lot of conversation about that i've heard no one talk about what makes a good student which is why i wanted to talk about that okay you've got to bring a certain attitude to the table if you want to be a good student you do let's talk about that next time okay okay brother <laughs> thank you thank you everyone thank you thank you thank you sheree
and ask questions, comment, ask us if there are things that you want us to talk about. <sighs> We've been lost. No! <laughs> Is it cut out already? Yeah. Gone. That, okay. one, that one's, that one's still, still on. working. <laughs> so if you have questions, um, post them on the, mm. ask us on the forums or email. Uh, let make a topic. Like, I'm going to make a, a thread that's pinned on the forum. Yeah. That'll be the easiest way. Sure. You can hear us ramble on for hours. Thank you, my brother. But we need yes. coffee. A great pleasure. As always. Thank Likewise. you. Thank you, Sheree. Thank you, Sheree.